It is always good to be together in the Word, especially on such a beautiful fall day that the Lord has given us this morning, continuing in Matthew chapter 5, looking particularly at verses 10 through 11, blessed the particularly persecuted part two. Jesus comes forth preaching. He sets his disciples down at the end of the Sea of Galilee and he opens his mouth to teach them the radical message of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom that indeed it is the king that reigns and the king's reign is being manifest not apart from his people but in his people. We consider the blessings of the king the happiness due to favorable circumstances that he provides, the blessings of Jesus Christ exist for him people, his people both in the now and in the not yet. For now, those who are poor in spirit, those bankrupt apart from the Holy Spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. It is ours today. For we are the subjects of that kingdom. It's not simply we will be a part of the kingdom of heaven, but that we are a part of the kingdom of heaven. And the nature of the new creation in us is nothing short than the character of Christ himself being formed in us. It is his spirit that is in us. His mourning over sin, his meekness, not weakness, but great power under proper control. It's his righteousness, his mercy, his pure heart, and his peace. Therefore, as we've considered the Sermon on the Mount over the last several weeks, we would say that it is not a formula for a blessed life, but instead is the description of the life that Jesus Christ is blessing. For it is out of Christ in us that flows all of the blessings that are not yet, but will be. The comfort, the inheritance of the earth, satisfaction by righteousness, the receiving of mercy, seeing God face to face, and not being rejected, but being called the very sons and daughters of God. It's a radical gospel, and it is a radical kingdom. So radical that in the midst of this world, it will not draw a favorable eye, but instead will result in persecution, which if you want to stick with the radical theme, Jesus radically says, is itself blessed. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 11, Jesus continues and says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. And that blessing is not a blessing that is not yet, but instead a blessing that is now. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not just any persecution. This is persecution that comes specifically for righteousness' sake. It comes specifically because men and women and boys and girls are fulfilling the righteous standard. And last week we asked, what is that standard? And in comparing verses 10 and verses 11, it becomes very clear. The righteousness that Jesus is speaking of that brings about persecution that is blessing is nothing less than Christ. 
It is nothing less than the king himself. And if you weren't here last week, I'm not going to go back and go through it again, but I want you to listen to it if you weren't, because what we're not saying is this. What we're not saying is that persecution comes because of fulfilling a standard that is Christ's righteousness. Instead, we're saying this, persecution comes because the standard being fulfilled is Christ. It is Christ being formed in us. It is the new creation. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory that brings about persecution in a world that is opposed to that glory. It's Jesus in you that provokes persecution. It's not just being associated with his name. I mean, there are all sorts of buildings. There are all sorts of denominations. There are all sorts of people that have signs and creeds and name tags that associate them with the name of Jesus Christ, but only in the name alone and not in the fullness of his name that Scripture speaks about. They don't get persecuted for him. All sorts of them. But when Christ himself is manifest... When the standard is brought forth, it is Jesus in the new creation that provokes persecution. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 20. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Why? Because of the reality of the new creation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. Man, if there has ever been a passage that informs on the theology of Romans chapter 4, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You want to talk about a God who speaks something out of nothing? He looks down at his son who is holy, who knew no sin, and said, I will make you sin on their account. He looks at us who had no righteousness of our own and didn't simply say, I will make you righteous, but I will make you the very righteousness of God. I will give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why persecution comes. Because they persecuted him and he is being formed in his people. He's being manifest. We call it sanctification, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so it's not a question of if persecution is going to come. It is simply a question of when and in what manner. And when it comes, how are we as the people of God being formed into the image of Christ going to respond? And the answer first is in the negative. We're going to respond not like the world. That is not how we're going to respond. And believe me, I know it can be tempting. It can be tempting to want to respond in kind. We do not respond like the world. Instead, Peter told us last week that we respond without fear. Not repaying, reviling for reviling, or evil for evil. And friend, all you have to do is turn on the news today and watch that cycle. Reviling for reviling and evil for evil, but the Lord into which we are being conformed was one like a lamb before its shearers who was silent. 
We respond without fear. Not evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead honoring Christ as Lord. Fulfilling the way that here in just a couple of verses, he will teach us how to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, what we are saying is this, is to be able to find yourself in a position of blessing where you can literally say that I am happy because of favorable circumstances in the midst of a persecution that is certain. What the saints have to do is be honestly good with God's will being done. Even when it means hard things for them. Or when it means hard things for their spouse or their children or their grandchildren or their parents or their friends. To rejoice and be glad, which is where we're going to go next week in verse 12. To rejoice and to be glad when you are reviled and persecuted requires not simply understanding the sovereignty of God. Friend, it does require that. But that alone is not sufficient. You must understand both that God is sovereign and then be able to embrace the goodness of God in that sovereignty when it brings difficult, reviling, and persecuting circumstances to your front door. If you're not going to respond like the world, then I think it's necessary for us to understand today not simply why the world responds, That's what we looked at last week. They respond because they hate Christ. And when they see Christ being formed in you, the thing they hated in Him, they still hate now. That's why they respond with reviling and evil. But it is not enough to simply understand why they respond. We also need to understand how they respond and what it's going to look like because Jesus says it has some very particular characteristics I think you can call this bright lights yields big fights blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are you I'm not going to get ahead of myself we're going to wait till next week but I want you to notice Just get it in your head for a moment that between verses 10 and 11, there is a shift in the person. Jesus first says something in third person, blessed are those who are persecuted. See, at that point, we're still pretty comfortable because you can keep it on a real intellectual level. There is theoretically an opportunity to be persecuted. And when that theoretically happens, you would theoretically be blessed. But then he moves away from a general statement of righteousness to a particular statement of righteousness. It's not just any old righteousness. It's for Christ's sake righteousness. And he moves away from a generalized statement about who the person persecution comes to from a third person to a second person. Blessed are you. Which if I was sitting in the audience that day, along beside you, that would mean me and you. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So what we should expect is for this not to remain in the theoretical, but to become very particular and personal to us as individuals. 
This isn't something I'm learning about so I will know the theory of how it works. This is something that I'm learning about that Jesus is teaching and telling us because we are going to need to know it on a very first-hand basis. So it's not just why they respond. You need to know how they're going to do it. You need to know how they're going to do it. And the reality is, is bright lights leads to big fights in the midst of a dark, dark world. I want you to look this morning in Luke chapter 16. And we're going to spend a little time here because I think it informs very well on the way and the, the, the thought and emotional process that lies behind the persecution of the world against to those whom belong to the kingdom of heaven. In Luke chapter 16 in verses 1 through 9, and I know it's a little bit of a, it's kind of a large passage, but I, I want to I read it. Um, it's, it's a passage that doesn't get read a lot. It, it's a little difficult to deal with, and we're not going to you know, try to crack every hickory nut that's in it today. Um, but we need it for context to, to get where we're going. And basically what Jesus says is this, the sons and daughters of the kingdom... Those who are called the very sons of God, because they're poor in spirit and they have the kingdom now, the sons and daughters of the kingdom are not naturally a shrewd group of people. They're just not. Being shrewd is something that, that Christians are not naturally very good at. And so in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, Jesus tells this parable. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Well, this guy's not a good manager, but at least he's honest about his position, right? He's like, man, I'm, I'm no good behind a shovel or a pickaxe, and I'm too, too proud to, to beg. What am I going to do? I've decided what to do. And so when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. He says, look, man, I've got an idea. I know I'm getting the boot. Like, it's a done deal. I've got a little bit of time here, and what I need to do is kind of, you know, scratch some backs and grease some palms, so to speak. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So this guy's cooking the books on favor of the people that owe, thinking that will give him favor with them in the future. And he says, man, you don't know 100, you owe 50, you don't know 100, you owe 80. And when the master finds out, being one of his own kind and ilk, he actually commends him for what he does. And it's not going to save the guy's job. But he commends him for what he does. When, when Look, man, when, when, when you've got a... a, a when you have a pit viper that makes a particularly good strike, the other pit vipers are impressed. 
His master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Then Jesus says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Christians, you're just not very good at being crafty. And that's okay. But you need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of it. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. And and just real quickly this morning so you don't misunderstand without going into a big deal. Unrighteous wealth means the kind of money that you can count. This is an unrighteous world. Unrighteous wealth. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails and you better believe it will, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And so there's a lot going on here, but for this morning's sake, we'll just say this, that for the saint, shrewdness and craftiness in the midst of this world is just not our game. We're not naturally very good at it. It's because of the nature of the new creation. We want the good, which is good, But we make the mistake of seeing the world through the lens in which we exist. And so because we want the good and we want what's best, then we want to assume that the world wants what's good and the world wants what's best. And so you really don't have to be shrewd. You don't have to play it too close to the chest. And you can just kind of let all your cards show and everything's going to be okay because I want the best for them and they want the best for me. And there is great danger in that because that is not the nature of the kingdom of this world. It's not the nature of the kingdom of this world. As a matter of fact, speaking of the prince of this kingdom, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Which is why Scripture describes Christians and the kingdom of heaven in the midst of this world as being sheep in the midst of wolves. And that's how it is. And you're not supposed to change. You're not supposed to go, "Uh uh-oh, being a sheep's dangerous. I'm supposed to go be a wolf. That's not what's supposed to happen. What you are supposed to be is aware of the reality. You've got to be aware of the reality. This takes us all the way back. It's not in the notes, but if I can for just a minute. This takes us all the way back to poor in spirit. This is when you go to God and you go, I'm broke. Flat busted, man. I am a sheep in the midst of wolves. If all of these promises are true, if this kingdom is going to be mine, if peace is going to be mine, if mercy is going to be mine, if all of these things are going to be true, then it's going to have to be you that gives them to me. Because I don't have the teeth and I don't have the claws. The reason that Christians lack shrewdness is because their focus is in a different place. So when, when your heart's after something different, then, then you lack the, the skills that are, that are not associated with that. When, you, when your heart's after the kingdom of heaven, you naturally lack the motivation and the skills that would normally be needed in order to progress in the kingdom of the world. And so Jesus says it like this. If you continue in verse 10, uh, here in, in Luke 16, in verse 10... Um, I'm sorry, in verse 14, 
Um, in verse 14, it says, oh, no, I'm sorry, it is 10. Verse 10, sorry, I got in the wrong chapter, and boy, when that happens, then it just all comes unwound on. <laughs> in chapter 16, in verse 10, Jesus continues and says this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so now Jesus isn't talking about the parable anymore. He's not talking about this, you know, this 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 parable of a shrewd manager. Now he's taking the truth that is in that and applying it directly to the people he's speaking to. Once again, we've made a shift from theoretical third person to actual second person. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so you might think to yourself, for instance, man, I, I like old manager Bob over here. I owed 100 credits of oil, and he cut me down to 50. I'm going to be nice to this guy. Let me tell you, when manager Bob comes knocking on your door, he'll be just as dishonest with you as he was with his master, and maybe worse the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Jesus says if you can't take care of your checking account, which is full of unrighteous wealth and the wealth of this world that is doomed to pass away, then who's going to entrust you with the stuff that is spiritual and eternal, which is a big deal if to you belongs the kingdom of heaven? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, I would have you note that the point of what Jesus is talking about is not money. That's simply the example that he used to convey the point. What Jesus is talking about is the priority of servanthood. Whose servant are you? In this case, he uses money as an example. There's a lot of people that want to serve money and they don't want to serve God, but you can't serve both. It's going to have to be one or the other. But you can plug in any worldly reality in the place of money. You're not going to be able to serve God in fame. You're not going to be able to serve God in power. Take your pick. It doesn't matter. The point's not money, even though it certainly applies. The point is priority of service. Whose servant are you? Because at the end of the day, there's only going to be one master. Just because you can't serve God in money doesn't mean you shouldn't be responsible with both. And yet there must be priority. There must always be one that's in the service to the other. That's Christ's point. This is the, the light of truth that he is shining on them. So here you've got these Pharisees. And he says, let me tell you a parable. And we'll start off talking about something that is theoretical. And you know the thing about hypothetical and, and theoretical when it comes to parables and examples and all that kind of stuff. One of the beautiful things about those is, you know, you're always just a little bit different enough from the hypothetical that's being described that you can kind of separate yourself from it. You can nod your head and go, oh yeah, you can't serve God money. I know that. 
pretty responsible. Jesus isn't going to let it stay there. And so he moves it to the truth. And he says, look, if you're faithful in much, in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're dishonest in little, you'll be dishonest in much. You can't serve both. You can't serve God in money. And he's picking this particular example because he knows the heart of men and he knows it's going to put the finger on the people that are standing right in front of him. For they are Pharisees and they have a particular love for money. And what he is doing is going to expose their heart in such a way, and this is where the persecution starts, so hang with me, in such a way that they feel compelled to respond in order to justify what they love. So it looks like this. In Luke chapter um, 16, in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, see, that's the thing about being Jesus, that whole omniscient thing, that whole all-knowing deal, you know, you're kind of playing with a stacked deck a little bit. He knows exactly where these guys' hearts are at. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. Blessed are you, not just when you're persecuted, but verse 11, blessed are you when you are reviled and slandered and persecuted, have all sorts of false accusations of evil made against you on my account, Christ says. And so here's Christ, the original example, not Christ being formed in you or me provoking persecution, but Christ himself provoking it. And it says the first thing they did was revile him for what he said. They spoke evil of him. The Pharisees who were the lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What happens is that the thing that Jesus proclaims is contrary, he says, to their hearts. Not, not, not to their intellect, not, not to their logic, not even necessarily you know, to, to their raising or their culture. It is contrary to their hearts. God knows your hearts. And because what he says to them is contrary to their hearts, that is the very definition of attacking the substance of a person. The word heart here in the Greek means the center of your being. God knows your hearts, these particular guys here. He knows you love money more than you love him. And exposing that attacks who you are. Man, you can say lots of bad stuff about me, and it'll bounce off me like BBs off of a battleship. As long as you're wrong. You say something negative about me that's true, well, I'll get my feelings hurt. It's typically how you know you're on the right track. Man, when you speak 
against something that lies in the heart of an individual, something that they love, there is offense. And it shows them to have desires that are apart from Christ, apart from the King, apart from God. And when your desires have been exposed... And guys, you have to consider here, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to get the Pharisees off the hook, but you have to consider that that maybe they're seeing it in that kind of harsh light for the first time as well. You know, it's not that they're all sitting around, maybe some of them are, we don't know, but it's not that they're all sitting around going, I love money more than God and I hope nobody finds out. And there are realities that when God shows them to you, you're shocked that that's you. When the desires of your heart are exposed and they're shown to be in, in contradiction to the desires in the heart of God, then the creature only has one choice. He can either abandon those desires or he can try to justify them. He can try to justify them, which is exactly what they did. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things. They ridiculed him, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. This is what it looks like. You've shown me the heart of God. It has revealed my heart to be contrary to it. I refuse to abandon it. Therefore, I will justify myself. And the only that you know what justify means, right? It means to be put in the right. It literally means to be declared correct. And if you have God telling you, this is my heart and yours is the opposite of that, the only way for you to justify yourself and declare yourself correct is to declare him as wrong. That's the only way you can do it. You can't have him be justified and you be justified because you both have opposing opinions to each other. They're mutually exclusive. They, They do not compute. Does not equal in the middle of the equation. And so the only way for you to be right is to declare him wrong. Which is why ridicule always precedes persecution. But more on that in just a moment. What you are seeing unfolding in Luke chapter 6 is a picture of the gospel of the kingdom in action. This is what it looks like when you declare the gospel. This is what it looks like when you share the gospel with men that are members of the kingdom of this world. It is a, it is a spitting image of the theology of John chapter 3. It's exactly how it works. Look in John chapter 3. Um, verses 1 through 8, just to give you the, you know, the background. John chapter 3, verse 1. You know, we're, we're going to get to for God so loved the world. But that wasn't said in a vacuum. It wasn't even said in public. It was said privately to another Pharisee named Nicodemus. And so in John chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now look, a lot of Pharisees say flattering things to Christ early in his ministry. 
Turns out Nicodemus belongs to the Lord. He's the real deal, and he's coming all the way through to the end. But we don't know that at this point because it hasn't been manifest in him at this point yet. But it's coming. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, I love you, he says he answered him. Like, like Nicodemus doesn't even ask a question. He just says, we know you're the real deal. And Jesus says, all right, I got some stuff for you. So here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, and boy, does he have some stuff. Goodness gracious. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so, man, Jesus just drops this, you know, this truth bomb right on Nicodemus's, you know, turbaned head here, standing in the streets in Jerusalem. And he says, man, you got to be born again. How do you do that? You know, Nicodemus at this age, his mom's probably dead. How you, can a man enter again into his mother's womb and be born again? He's like, dude, you're like so not on the same page. He's like, man, the wind blows where it wishes. So it is with the spirit. Now look, well, that which is flesh is flesh. We're talking about the things of the spirit here. Then in verse 16 through 21, you get the gospel in its full and unadulterated form. And notice I said verse 16 through 21 because I want you to know something this morning. John chapter 3 verse 16 is not the gospel. It is a portion of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel any more than the foundation of your house is your home. Man, it's foundational, it's critical. You can't have the gospel without John 3.16. But if, if you approach that as being the entirety of the gospel, you will preach a perverted form of the gospel that will lead to salvation for almost no one and damnation for many. Just like just having a foundation without walls and a roof will not suffice to have shelter from the storm. You have to have the whole thing. You have to have the whole thing. And so here's what Jesus says it looks like. Now, now I want you to keep the situation in Luke chapter 16 with the Pharisees who end up ridiculing Christ. I want you to keep that in the back of your head as we're looking at the doctrine that Christ teaches us here. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so here's the first statement. Jesus is the Son of God. And he comes in goodness to bring life. Real straightforward. Foundational. Jesus is the Son of God. He comes in goodness to bring life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Man, restatement of the goodness of God, just in case you missed it. The world doesn't need to be condemned. The world is condemned already. And, and the Lord is about to affirm that. But he wants you to know first that he came not to condemn you, but to save you. So, hey, you lovers of money over here that are scoffing at the fact that I say you can't serve God in money, know why I'm here. 
know who I am and why I'm here. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the ultimate standard of all that is right in the universe. And He comes to bring you salvation. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, that's why Jesus didn't have to come to condemn the world. They'd condemn themselves. They're condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Okay, so here's the truth. God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. He did not send him to condemn you, but to save you. He didn't have to condemn you. You're condemned already, which is why you need to be saved. Those are the points of truth. Here's God's judgment. Here's the shakedown. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And if I might paraphrase here a little bit, I would say it has come into the world and it has shone brightly. The light has come into the world, but people loved... Statement of the heart. But people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so here you have Jesus, and he is, he is the light. He's not shining a light. He's shining himself, John chapter 1. Okay, He is the light of the world. He is shining himself. He is the righteous standard. It is not his righteousness. It is not his righteousness associated with us that brings forth persecution. It's his righteousness in us. Here he is. He is the light. He is shining into the world. And it exposes the world for what it is. And then at that point, one of two things can happen. When being exposed for what you are, Pharisee who loves money, you can either justify yourself, deny that he is correct and claim that he is wrong, ridicule him and eventually persecute him, or you can deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. Those are the two options. That's it. You can either scurry and hide from the light. Because you love darkness. Or you can come to the light. And prove that what's being done in you is being carried out not by you, but being carried out by God himself. Whether it's Jesus talking to Pharisees one-on-one, -on -one, Nicodemus in the street. Whether it's Jesus talking to Pharisees in a group. Knowing their heart and exposing them whether it's Jesus showing himself to me or to you, whether it's Christ in you being shown to others, shine the light of Jesus and you force men to examine themselves. And it has often been said, the man who is honestly mistaken when confronted with the truth either ceases to be mistaken or ceases to be honest. Now, of mankind's own accord, they will choose poorly. I mean, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. 
Man, they suppress the truth. They justify themselves. They would make themselves be right and God to be wrong. And the first step in doing that is accusation and ridicule against that which is right. It always starts here. That's why the very first things that the Pharisees did when he said you can't serve both God and money was not to pick up stones and try to stone him. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You better believe that the reviling and the false accusation will always precede the actual persecution because that's the way they begin to put themselves in the right and to put Christ in you in the wrong. It always starts there. They don't just ever see the light of Christ shine and go, you know what, we're going to kill you. That's not the way it works. Before you can do that, you have to put yourself in the right, which means putting God and his people in the wrong. Slander is necessary for persecution to happen. You cannot have persecution without slander preceding it. The reason is because all of this is happening within the context of society and society's institutions. An institution and society doesn't simply turn on a dime. If the saints shining the light of Jesus Christ and revealing your heart causes you, want to, you to want to justify yourself by reviling them, before you can do anything to silence them, you have to first make them the bad guy. Because there's no society, you can find no society at large in the history of the human race that will champion the persecution of that which they believe to be good. Now, humans will persecute the good all the time, but never in the name of persecuting the good. It doesn't matter where you look. If you want to look at Rome under Trajan, if you want to look at Germany under the Third Reich, if you want to look at Cambodia under Pol Pot, it doesn't matter where you look. There's lots of persecution of what is good and what is righteousness, but never under the name of persecuting what is good. Instead, what is good first has to be painted as being evil. The light must become the dark and the dark must become the light. The right must become the wrong and the wrong must become the right. That which is evil must be called good and that which is good must be called evil. Because otherwise, the natural order that is displayed in creation about the glory of God in Romans chapter 1 demands that the right not be persecuted. So slander always comes first. They have to have it to justify their own heart. And it sets the stage for the persecution and the silencing of the light that would expose them that is to come. Matthew Henry said it. He always says it in a way more eloquent than I can. Matthew Henry said it like this, speaking about slander that leads to persecution. He said, those who have, 
Those who have had no power in their hands to do them any other mischief could yet do this. And those who have had power to persecute had found it necessary to do this too in order to justify themselves in their barbarous usage of them. They could not have baited them if they had not dressed them in bearskins, nor have given them the worst treatment if they had not first presented them as the worst of men. Which is exactly what you see over and over and over and over. These are the men that turn the world upside down. This is the one who is spoken against Caesar, proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews. This is the one who is spoken against God himself, claiming to be the son of God. He said before Abraham was, he is. You know, in the first century, one of the big accusations that was used to drag Christians before the courts of the Romans was cannibalism. It was a big deal. They accused him of cannibalism because the Christians believed that in partaking of communion, that they were partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. Now that's about as far from cannibalism as I am from a vegetarian. But if you're going to persecute them and you have no just cause... You first have to create one. And they did. In the first century, Christians were accused of cannibalism over communion. In the 21st century, Christians are accused of hatred and even violence simply for rejecting perversion as being morally acceptable and upholding the moral order of creation or what us kind of old school guys just call what's reality. Two weeks ago, Jamie Lee Curtis says this. These are very dangerous times. Okay, with that statement, I can agree. These are very dangerous times. I pray that the homophobia and transphobia that is being championed in the name of religion by the right is exposed and silenced as wrong by the love of humanity that is the center of our gay and trans community. That is Luke chapter 16. That is John chapter 3 on display. These people are dangerous. And they're dangerous. And where we're going, the intent to where we're getting to is they must be silenced. But we can't justify whatever we have to do to silence them as long as what they're saying is being perceived as righteous and good. And so instead, we have to paint it as something else. We have to paint it as homophobia and transphobia. Guys, I know a lot of people, I'm one of them, I know a lot of guys in this room, a lot of ladies in this room, a lot of them outside of this room, man, that, that hold to a, a God-fearing and, and, and rational view of the creation that reality is actual reality. I don't know any of them. You know what phobia means, right? Irrational fear. I don't know any of them who are afraid of homosexuals. Know the difference between a truth and a lie. Know the difference between righteousness and iniquity. 
I know the, the, the difference between bowing the knee to the Creator and being in rebellion against them. Guys, I don't have a glutton phobia either, and I know gluttony is a sin, and I'm not scared of gluttons. But if you're going to be silenced, you first have to be painted as in the wrong. And so there's slander and there's reviling and there's labels that are false and not true. They have to build these straw men by their own, by, by their own definition. They have to build them in order that once built, they can be exposed. And having exposed them, they can silence what's behind it. This is the way it always works. Okay, this is the way it always works. This is the way it worked for all the prophets. This is the way it worked for Christ. This is the way it worked throughout the history of the church. And the reason is because whether you're looking at the history of the church or you're looking at all the prophets that go back before them, they are all having Christ formed in them. It shines light into the darkness. It exposes the darkness. And at that point in time, you can decide what you're going to love. You've previously loved darkness. You're going to continue to love that and scurry from the light. Or you're going to run to the light and show what you did was carried out in God. And if you choose, if you choose to justify yourself, the only way to do it is to accuse God. And if you're going to get him and his people to be silenced, then you must first be able to paint them in the wrong. Now I would have you note, and I want to say this adamantly because I don't want any misunderstanding. Friends, speech is not violence. Speech is not violence. And, and, and that, that argument is being made against us constantly right now. And so I do not want you to mistakenly think I'm making it against them. Because I'm not. Speech is not violence. Speech is speech. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Violence comes with some sort of kinetic force. That's what violence is. Won't get off on the subject. Drives me crazy. Can't watch any, you can't see anything from, you know, anything from the public school system, even private school system. You can't hear anything. Bullying, bullying, bullying. Everybody's being bullied. And I'm like, man, they punch you in the nose and take your lunch money. You know? Like, words are words. However, words convey the heart that's behind them. Which is why, when it comes to these kind of topics, what we have to make sure that we do as Christians is we've got to go out of our way to condemn the sin and say, but the gospel of the kingdom is the entirety of John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. It's not, just, it's not just they're condemned already. And it's, and it's not just for God so loved the world. It's both. And you've got to have both. You've got to have both. If you don't have both, if they're not condemned already, then you don't need to be saved from anything. And, and if you're only condemned already, then what's the point anyway? It's got to be they were condemned already and, and God so loved the world that he sent his son Speech is not violence, but it conveys the heart. We've got to make sure our heart is being conveyed because you better believe the heart of the world is being conveyed. And the speech that they are using clearly indicates that the end game is silence. And if that kind of thinking 
can be clearly articulated and has filtered its way down to the court gestures of our world, then you better believe the real thinkers that lie behind the power structures of this present darkness have already been perfecting that thought for a long time. She was in a, a bad horror movie and a fish called Wanda. If she can articulate it, somebody else way further up the food chain has already perfected the way that they plan to implement it. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Friend, speech is not violence. But what speech may very well do is telegraph a violent heart. So when you're taking the gospel into the world, what you're going to do And it's going to bring about persecution (laughs) for all the reasons we've looked at today. Know the heart of who you're speaking to. Jesus did. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly the danger he was dealing with. And he was okay with it because he fully embraced not only the sovereignty of God, but God's goodness in the midst of it. Jesus knew their heart. In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says that now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And so when you go out there proclaiming the gospel, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't think to yourself, well, this guy, he's not saved, but he's a pretty good old boy. Don't do that. You need to be more shrewd than that. Understand that apart from the deeds of God being carried out in a man so that they come to the light, what they are is condemned and creatures of darkness. You go, man, aren't we undermining the um, aren't we undermining the, the motivation to go out and proclaim the gospel? It didn't undermine Jesus' motivation. That's the whole point. That's why he came. He didn't come to save the righteous. <laughs> he came to save the sinners. He wasn't looking for the sheep that were behaving, he was looking for the lost sheep. And, but he knew it. He knew what was in them. He knew what they were. He knew they were dangerous and he was okay with it. So no. No. And then go and do. And watch the very miracle of God unfold before your eyes. Because that's what the gospel is. 
Man, it's, it's, it's not to show that men are evil. It's to show that when men come to the light, it is proof that what they're doing is being carried out by God himself. It's the miracle of the glory that is due his name. Know what you're getting into. For such it was with the prophets, so it will be with us. That's where we'll pick up next week. Man, if you don't know Jesus, you should come to the light today. Quit justifying yourself. He takes all that seek him. Let's pray.